A brief note before this episode of Judaism Unbound, as we release the episode this Friday, it's the end of a week in which our hearts have been broken, in which so many hearts have been broken over the murder by police of George Floyd and just one of many such incidents that have happened over the year, over the last years and over the last 400 years in America. It's something that perhaps this week has broken something open in our world where perhaps justice can rise up finally, and perhaps not, in which case we're going to have to keep fighting. We hope to do an episode of Judaism Unbound on short notice that would address the particular experiences that we're facing right now around race, around Judaism and race, around the experiences of Jews of color, but for various reasons, largely because some of the people that we would most want to talk to are out on the barricades or just physically or mentally exhausted, we haven't been able to put together that show for this week. And so we've decided to run the show that we had planned to run this Friday, which is a wonderful and important episode of Judaism Unbound. But we thought that we would start by just saying that Black Lives Matter. We believe that Judaism should always be on the side of those who are the victims of oppression in society, and all the more so when that includes our siblings, our very own Jews of color. And so we are with you in solidarity. There is no us without you. And we are going to address this very soon on Judaism Unbound. But we want to offer this episode, this regular episode of Judaism Unbound, which perhaps will provide you some solace, something to think about, some other perspectives, as Judaism Unbound is always trying to do in a time that's been a particularly difficult and terrible week, as there have been many difficult and terrible weeks over the last years here in America and around the world. I would note two things. One is that in the most recent episode of The Oral Talmud, which is another show that we're producing on the Jewish Live platform, you can find it at www.jewishlive.org slash oral talmud. B'nai Lapi and I studied a text about the Jewish obligation to protest, a text that says that those who can protest and who don't take upon themselves the burden of the sin of the thing that they should have been protesting against. And you'll hear in that conversation that protest can mean a variety of things, but to stand silent is not an option. And so we really hope that you'll take a look at that episode. And we also wanted to start this episode with a prayer that was written by our friend April Baskin, a previous guest on Judaism Unbound, someone who we deeply admire and whose voice is really what we need right now. Just a few more words about April to remind you, she was formerly the Vice President of Audacious Hospitality at the Union for Reform Judaism, and now she is the Principal Life Coach and Consultant at Joyous Justice Consulting, and also the Racial Justice Director of the Jewish Social Justice Roundtable. And here is April Baskin in her own voice with a protest prayer. A protest prayer. Beloved siblings striving for justice, Shema, listen closely at all times. My prayer for you is that you remember protest is a sacred act. Just as the mourner's Kaddish helps souls ascend to God, may our cries soothe those whose lives were prematurely extinguished. 
and rattle the bones and stones of leaders and institutions, leaving no question about the fact that things are never going back, only forward. For more of us are clear that we have nothing to lose but our chains. We affirm we are a multiracial people. We will stand strong, humble, and proud as we follow and work in partnership with black leaders, taking steady strides in the direction of collective liberation. Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 225, Jewish Psychedelics. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And we are here just after the holiday of Shavuot, which marks on the Jewish calendar the idea or the time when the Israelites gathered around Mount Sinai and Moses went up there and something happened over the course of 40 days. And Moses then came down with with something that he said, now we got to do this stuff. And on Shavuot, we kind of reenact that Sinai moment in a certain way, in all kinds of ways. And these days, we're pushing the idea that, and we just had this amazing 24-hour study session on the internet, as did a number of other organizations. And so we think there's this idea that Sinai is kind of happening again in our time. And there's a new way in which Sinai might be happening again in our time. It might be that now that Shavuot has passed, that holiday that marks when Moses went up to the mountain, this would be the time to sort of be curious about what actually happened there. And our guest today, Zach Kamenetz, hopefully can give us a little bit of a sense of perhaps what some of that might have been like. He is an Orthodox rabbi who participated in a study conducted by the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Department at Johns Hopkins University, exploring the nature of consciousness and mystical experience. And in that study, clergy members from different religions were given high doses of the psychedelic substance that is found in magic mushrooms, and their responses were studied. Zach is going to tell us about that study and its findings and his experiences and his work after the study. On the other side of the study, Zach has founded an organization called the Jewish Entheogenic Society, and he's seeking to build Shefa, which is preparing for the time when these substances will be legalized, and after that it would provide a Jewish set and setting for individuals to have these experiences with trained guides and to integrate these experiences within the context of Jewish communal life and practice. If that wasn't enough, Zach is also the founder of the Shefa Podcast Network, which focuses on podcasts by embodied and inspiring teachers of Kabbalistic and Hasidic works and practices. And he's the co-director of Beloved Berkeley, a home-based experience in Jewish living out of his house that weaves together steady singing, spiritual practices, and delicious meals and fellowship. And he also has a full-time day job as the uh, director of Jewish Living and Learning at the JCC of San Francisco. I have no idea how he does all these things, but we're excited to speak mostly about his experiences in the Johns Hopkins study and his work after that. If you're interested in Zach's personal story and how he came to uh, be a rabbi and how he came to do some of these other things that he's done, we would urge you to listen to another show on the Judaism Unbound Jewish Live family, the Idra Hour with Joe Schwartz, where a few weeks ago... Uh, 
Zach was the guest on that show, and they talked about some of that. And you can find that at www.jewishlive.org slash on demand. So this promises to be a very exciting conversation. It was a long time in coming. So Zach Kamenetz, welcome to Judaism Unbound. We are really thrilled to have this conversation with you. I'm excited to be with you today. So if you could just start a little bit by telling us, I guess, um, how you found out about this Johns Hopkins study, how they found you, who were you before this, this uh, study yeah. happened, and, and tell us a little bit about what the study was all about. I have been a rabbi since 2012. I've been working in the organized Jewish community in America right after that. And uh, working with BBYO International and then working with the JCC of San Francisco, I would say that I was, you know, kind of a regular Jewish, uh, progressive, orthodox person who loved texts and loved community. Um, and it was at some point in that, in that time that um, we had a very hard time, my wife and I, with uh, infertility and, you know, the meaning, the 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 color, all of the, the magic of, of Jewish life and community kind of just drained out. Um, it was also at that time where a friend of mine sent me a rejection letter from the Johns Hopkins University uh, study that you mentioned, saying that uh, he was not eligible to participate in this religious leader study um, because he had had a prior experience with psychedelics. So, um, he forwarded it to me, I wrote to them, and I started communicating with one of the program managers there um, about how I would participate. Um, it was a very intense process. There were a number of screenings. They flew me out there to Baltimore. Um, I had a medical screening. Uh, I spoke with a number of the guides, the lead researcher, his name's Roland Griffiths. And it was determined that I was, I was right for the study, not only my life circumstance, but the fact that I had never experienced psychedelics before. And then they tossed a coin. They saw that I would be in one aspect of the study and not the other, the delayed group. Um, and then I scheduled two major experiences with psychedelics six months apart from each other. And what does the delayed group mean? The delay group means that you have to wait three months after uh, your initial screening. So I think that's just part of the program design is that they have an immediate group. You are scheduled for the next week or so. And then the delayed group to see, are, is there any difference in the data between the people who immediately go into these experiences versus people who wait, the anticipation, maybe talking about it. Um, I don't know the, the precise details, but mm. I think that there's something about, about that. Yeah. So can you give us a little bit of the context of the study? Like what exactly were they trying to find out? Was there, and I guess maybe also a little bit about where we might be starting from on this idea of psychedelics. Like I think a lot of us think of it as like some naughty thing that was being done in the sixties. That's right. And uh, you know, and then and then Timothy Leary got in trouble and then it kind of was all over. Sure. And what's where is this going now in terms of science? Sure. So in the fifties and sixties, like as you mentioned, Timothy Leary, um, and also his his study buddy, um, Richard Alpert, who then became Ram Dass, uh, these were professors of psychology at Harvard, and they had had direct experiences with these psychedelics, magic mushrooms, as you mentioned, um, and began the Harvard Psilocybin Project. They were trying to understand uh, 
Um, what is the effect on, uh, on patients who are experiencing PTSD, depression, um, OCD, other um, mental illness? But at the same time, we're tr- starting to understand something about the nature of consciousness. And as they began to understand consciousness, they looked at different religious traditions that talked about not the psychedelic experience, but about the mystical experience. Like what happens when your consciousness is blown up, have the widest picture of the universe and your uh, part in it. And these spiritual masters from various Eastern and Western traditions wrote down what they would call these maps of consciousness. So for example, the Tibetan Book of the Dead uh, seems to describe when you're, um, when you're going through this process of dying, what do you see and what do you feel? And they took that to be, uh, from their direct experiences and from what others would, were telling them, almost a direct parallel from the experience of taking psilocybin. So they thought there is something here. But the Harvard Psilocybin Project was shut down and uh, several years later, all of these substances, magic mushrooms, peyote, mescaline, cacti, et cetera, um, they were made illegal under the um, Controlled Substance Act in the 70s by Richard Nixon. So all of the research that had, was completely shut down. All other uh, countries as well put these in a class of uh, regulation that said there is no human benefit to the research or even to the use of these things. Fast forward to uh, 2006, a researcher, as I mentioned, Roland Griffiths and others, uh, they got permission from the FDA and the government to see if they could open up this research at Johns Hopkins to see if they still had efficacy and benefit for people who were suffering from mental illness. And they published this paper called Psilocybin Can Occasion Mystical Type Experiences Having Substantial and Sustained Personal Meaning and Spiritual Significance. And so they, they ran this test in a controlled environment um, with a number of test subjects and saw through data and data collection after giving a major dose of psilocybin uh, to these people, after them experiencing six hours of this inner journey there in a well-appointed room with guides, that the experiences that they were ha- having were just as Timothy Leary and others had found mystical in its orientation. But from that initial paper, and you can read it uh, online, you can find it at at hopkinsmedicine.org, they then started creating more and more studies to apply psilocybin to different things. Long-time meditators, what happens to their minds? People who have terminal cancer, um, what happens to their um, their sense of mind and sense of peace and anxiety when after they take it? People who are addicted to smoking, what happens to people who are addicted to things? Uh, and they're finding really amazing stuff. And then I was in this study, what happens when you give major doses of this compound to people who have uh, a particular vocabulary and framework to talk about their experiences that is influenced by religious tradition, that is uh, applied to spiritual practice. And the study is not published. I don't know when it will be. I know that there were about 20 participants. Um, They had a hard time finding rabbis. And we'll see what they find, uh, hopefully, in the next uh, year or so. You mentioned that they had a hard time finding rabbis. And I've, because I 
did a little bit of homework. I was really interested in the reasons yeah. why they had a hard time finding rabbis. Yeah. Um, and it, it comes off as kind of funny, but I don't mean it in a funny way. And I don't think you do. Um, the, one of the reasons you talk about as why rabbis ha- were not being accepted into the program is that one of the prerequisites for the program is that you never had your own previous experience with with entheogens and many rabbis that were looking into this program did have previous experiences and um i read that and i was zero percent surprised and and um and i want to dive into why because it's not just to me it's not just like an interesting sociological fact that like okay so there's a lot of jews interested in um, I mean, we use the word experimentation all the time. We don't mean it in in the way that people sometimes hear it with with drugs, but like we also could mean it that way. Um, but so there's there's people that are Jewish who have been for a long time um, experimenting with entheogens. Fine, um, but I I think when people hear that, there's this presumption that like okay, they're Jews and maybe they're experimenting with these substances, but like. Is that in and of itself like a Jewish practice or an extension of Judaism? I think people sort of like they don't see those as necessarily intertwined. And I'd love to hear for you the ways in which they might intertwine. Like what what does it mean to have like a Jewish practice, a Jewish entheogenic practice um, that is different from another kind of entheogenic practice? How should we think about how this connects to like for the rabbis that maybe have had previous experiences or not like what what's happening there what links between this this practice and judaism first i want to take the opportunity to say that i do not advocate anyone taking an illegal substance um, that is not part of a controlled experiment these substances are illegal on the federal and state level even with decriminalization Uh, efforts to make it the lowest priority of law enforcement in Oakland, Santa Cruz, uh, both in California and in Denver, uh, these things are still illegal. There are so many things that we don't know about. Um, So I just want to say that off the bat. Um, But for people who are um, taking these things, um, I would say that there, I think that there is, this is complete conjecture. I think that there is something about participating in a religious tradition that has as its core in its core texts, in its liturgy, in its uh, the musings from its greatest spiritual masters that are practiced. You you ask, I think on this podcast, like what is Judaism for? And my sense is that when you approach these texts and maybe especially for religious professionals like rabbis who are dedicated to this, Judaism is for reaching beyond yourself, beyond your cognition, beyond uh, your biography, and connecting to uh, the great beyond, let's call it, or the divine, or spirit, or the Kaddish Baruch Hu, you know, the, the holy one. And I don't know if that experience is readily available for most practitioners. I don't think, you know, you... If you daven three times a day, you say brachot all day, you give tzedakah, you put on tefillin, you teach your children uh, Torah, um, will you inevitably have a mystical experience where you feel completely connected to the divine? Uh, No, I would say not. And of course, we have these very uh, venerable, honorable traditions of Jewish people 
Jewish masters trying to attain that kind of consciousness. But I would say for the everyday practitioner, especially not in the Orthodox world, um, those things might not be achieved so easily. Maybe, maybe people do feel that in meditation circles, but not to the level that I think it's described in our sacred literature. The rabbis who were interested in this, maybe because of their entheogenic experiences, because of uh, their experiences when they were young and just having fun with LSD or mushrooms or MDMA, came to understand something about themselves, the nature of the universe, the nature of the divine and their relationship toward it, and decided, I think I need to dedicate myself to this um, and see what's there. So therefore, if they were being honest when they answered that question um, and they were screened out. I would just say on the other side that I think not only were rabbis screened out because most of them had had experiences with psychedelics before, but there's also a strong current in the Jewish world, um, especially in the Orthodox world, uh, to not be in touch with illicit uh, substances. So any uh, you know, modern Orthodox, Orthodox, Haredi, Hasidic, rabbi or community leader might say, I don't want to be part of this study because I don't want to take drugs. I want to follow up. It's interesting that Lex had that reaction to the idea that they had a hard time finding rabbis. Like I, I, my mind was going somewhere else where when I saw this study and how it was talking about looking for clergy members to, who have these kind of, you know, closer experiences with God and that kind of thing, or, you know, would have like you say the vocabulary. I kind of think of a lot of rabbis I know who don't really have that, you know, that I, that I feel like a lot of rabbis I know, like it's not necessarily what a rabbi does where in the same way that we think of maybe uh, various clergy from other religions, that we think of them as, you know, very godly, very much focused on God all the time. And I often sure. think of rabbis as some some of them are that and many of them are not. And, and that's no shame. That's a different way that Judaism functions. So I'm curious about whether, for example, a rabbi who might be one of the more intellectual types, you know, yeah. who doesn't really think about God that much, yeah. would that rabbi be ineligible or eligible for this study? In other words, were they looking for people who are not only a clergy member, but of that particular orientation already? Uh, I think that was probably a happy accident for me um, in that, you know, I had had a endogenous, meaning natural um, mystical experience when I was young. Um, that's actually how I came to become observant. But I don't think it was, it was not a prerequisite for people to uh, define themselves as spiritual or holy or something. It was, I think the criteria was for people who felt comfortable being in that kind of vulnerable, expanded state, who were ready to download as much of their biographical and inner information with their guides as possible. Uh, and then to feel like, you know, when things got hard, and that is part of this experience, fear, anxiety, a sense of danger, that they would be able to work with it um, and not push it away, right? To dive into that difficult, ex that difficult experience, that bad trip, and come out the other side having learned something or gained something. So I would say someone who considers themselves rational or um, is a secular humanist or an atheist, uh, they might not like have a vision of the divine in front of them, you know, the, the voice of God speaking in there, but they might, they might experience what Walter 
Houston Clark calls the beyond, a sense of unity between all things and all people. They might not come out writing a new book of the Torah, but there might be an insight there that might guide the rest of their lives or just the next six months. Why does that matter? If somebody could hear that, for example, and say, okay, sure. I, like, I get it. The, somebody experiencing this opens up to a, a set of ideas in a way that they hadn't before, senses that unity that you talk about. Like, sort of, what does that mean for that person? What does that mean for the world? What does that mean, maybe, uh, although this is like less interesting to me, what does it mean for the Jews? Like, wh- yeah. what? So, so what? Well, we could take that a couple different ways. So what? Or like what now, maybe. Not so what, you know, but what now? Um, I think what you're talking about, like so what, after that experience, and that's what I you know, hope to be doing through this work as well, is not preferring the experience, um, you know, seeing myself giving birth to my wife, giving birth to my daughter. That did happen. It's not necessarily about the experience, but it is the integration that happens afterwards. So there's the preparation, right? Actually talking about my life and myself and my desires and my hopes and my fears. There's the experience on the couch. And then what happens after the fact? So what? Um, I'll just read here from, uh, there's this organization called Zendo, which is uh, a harm reduction organization that makes sure that people who are having psychedelic experiences know that they can go to a place like, let's say, at Burning Man and uh, feel safe. If they're having a, be- a hard time, they can go and, and be with someone to sit with them. Integration is the phase with, within which an individual assimilates and incorporates an experience into their psyche, body, and life. In psychotherapeutic terms, integration is a process of making the subconscious conscious. Integration is the process of reorganizing the self to include the material experienced during the altered state. So the so what is Um, after the ecstasy, the laundry. How does this experience change you? How does it change your ethics? How does it change your ritual life? How does it uh, change your doctrine? And through, I think, those three things, I think a person could become transformed. People, a community could become transformed from that integration of these deeply felt experiences, right? These indubitable senses, not just like a good idea or a value or a sense, not something that you read in a book and say, that sounds good, but something that I cannot escape because it happened within this organism. Um, I think that that's, that's, a, that's a different way of, of thinking about what, what next, not after a a great song session, not after a wonderful davening, but some, in some way I feel like I have been transformed and have to do something about it. I, I think that's a different way of thinking about Jewish spirituality and religion that we don't really talk about because the experiences don't have necessarily, um, might not have that kind of effect on the participant. They might in a way, in, in meaningful but small ways that don't necessarily last. This, I think the promise is that um, not only, according to the Hopkins study, um, I think 80% of people rated their experience on psilocybin as one of the top five most meaningful experiences of their life and their entire life, and 50% called it the number one experience of their entire life. Could you imagine what would happen if a dedicated group of 
not rabbis, just, you know, regular, normal Jews, got together, did study, did this in a safe, supported, and legal environment, and then said, well, what now? What do we do with our tradition? What do we do with the texts? What do we do with the ritual that has been given to us now that we know something more deeply about ourselves and maybe about the universe? What your story reminds me a little bit about when I first got the iPhone when it first came out and I would let people play with it for a while and they would be like so <laughs> taken in by it and then I would say to them, can you imagine what it would be like if Judaism was like this? Mm. You know, meaning yes, that that, that it's not only that, yeah. it's not only about what do we do next. I think it's about the experience itself. And I, I want to get into some of that a little bit because um my sister was uh, talking to me about uh, the story. There's a famous story in the Talmud about an orchard and four rabbis go into this orchard and one of them goes insane and one of them dies and one of them uh, becomes a heretic and only one of them, you know, comes out uh, in one piece, Rabbi Akiva, basically. And my sister, after she read Michael Pollan's book about psychedelics, she wrote me, I think I know what was growing in that orchard, mm. you know, and um, I kind of am thinking about this question of the primary religious experience, like if we think about the various, uh, the various maybe rabbis of the early days, but certainly the prophets, the people, and some of them sound like a really good trip, and some of them sound like a really bad trip. And it's really interesting to think about uh, either because maybe they had some uh, some chemical help or not, or maybe they were somehow able to get themselves into a similar state of mind in a different way. But it sounds very much like if we take seriously the prophets and that it wasn't just that they made stuff up and wrote you know fake books about it, they actually had some kind of experience. If we don't believe, if if the, for those of us who don't believe that it was actually you know God choosing them and coming down and doing that, you know, but nevertheless that experience should be taken seriously as a real experience. And it feels to me like what what something like you're describing indicates is that that experience really is real and it can be real. And the way that we might know how most easily to induce it in our time is through psychedelics. And I know that there are other kinds of practices that have to do with like deep breathing or yes. rapid breathing or something yes. that induce similar things or meditation. And so I, I guess I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about as you're reflecting on this about both kind of what might have been like, what was happening back then? I mean, that, that these people were having these primary experiences, and then I kind of feel like they somehow translated that into, you know, Judaism, into these into these practices, and that over 2,000 years, maybe with more and more distance, they become more and more distant from that primary experience, and then it sort of feels like, well, they're not really getting us, I think, maybe to where their originators thought they would get us to, and what do we do? You know, one option is to say, hey, and I guess that's my question about what do we do now in a world in which we can all have the primary experience granted wait till it's legal but should we be aspiring to all have that primary experience because that's really what it's all about or is there some sense and like this is what i was trying to always say with the iphone it's like if judaism isn't being experienced like this but i can have this kind of experience and then i kind of say oh i wish that judaism was like this maybe there's some way that we can do some repair work on judaism so that it would feel like that without the drugs yeah wow well i think you and michael paul and you know it's it's good to have like interested skeptics mm -hmm. to say like what's actually happening okay you know the people who are enthusiastic they look over some of the risks or they look over you know some of the other methods and i think they call them like psychedelic messiahs and 
it might sound like I am like psychedelic messiahing, but I'm actually more interested in the states of consciousness and not necessarily in the means because I, like you mentioned, there are many means to this, but I think as you mentioned again, this is the crash course in getting to the top of the mountain. Um, we could walk up the, we could walk up the path. We could even take a helicopter ride up to the top, but kind of taking a rocket ship is a completely different thing. So what was happening to the biblical prophets? I imagine that what these people were going through, and I really appreciate that you said that they were real experiences and not made up, was entering into this expanded state. We don't have a record of uh, people smoking or anything, but uh, merely that they happened. We don't have the circumstances um, with which they happened or the the training that they went through, and we have some, some training in, in the Hebrew Bible, at least with some prophets, um, but they had this vision that was completely real to them. They had either a vision that they could see, like thinking about Yechezkel and um, the, the, the chariot that was, that was moving, and it was you know, so elaborate and psychedelic, you could say. Yechezkel is the book of Ezekiel for the, folks. Yeah, the, the book of Ezekiel. Thank you. Um, or that uh, they had a profound sense of a, the political situation happening in Judea and what, need, what the community needed to do at that point. Either it was to repent. Um, they, uh, they had to do tshuva. Uh, they had to you know, look at their actions and see how their political circumstances were somehow connected to the way that they were running or not running their society. That is, I guess that is possible in an expanded state. I, I did not have uh, a vision of what I think all Jews or all people, I didn't have a world vision. Um, I had a workplace vision. <laughs> I, uh, at, at one point in my first trip, I saw a giant tree I, and I immediately knew that this was um, the Eitzachayim, the, the tree of life, that Kabbalistic structure that shows the 10 points of emanation from uh, the beyond, the, you know, the Godhead or whatever. And I saw that there were these two points, left and right, blue and red, that were emanating energy and flowing back and forth from each other, red to blue, red to blue. And I immediately understood this in the context of something that was happening in my professional life. And immediately after I came home from Johns Hopkins, I started taking actions only because of that. Maybe I would have gotten to that insight later, but maybe not. And so in a small way, then that's a reflection of seeing something, feeling something, intuiting something, and then doing something about it. And perhaps, you know, these prophets were so great that they could do it on a national scale. They could do it for all of Israel or Isaiah doing it for all of the world. And perhaps they just have a, maybe those people have more of a role in organized or disorganized Jewish life. Um, I don't think we talk uh, as often as we should about um, these, you know, these mystics among us. I think that we still experience, uh, the, you know, the mystics among us in the liberal world necessarily might have some bashfulness, spiritual bashfulness, as Heschel calls it, about talking about you know, I had a vision. I had this deeply uh, important dream um, for 200 years or so because of the Enlightenment, the Haskalah, liberal movements. 
This is something that they couldn't tolerate because it was not something that their neighbors would probably look favorably upon and to integrate into uh, polite European society. And it was mostly jettisoned um, by Western uh, Jewish practitioners and communities. If the texts are available, they might not be well understood or even learned by most people. The practices um, are, are written down and even you know, still communicated from teacher to student. But it's not part of our, our Jewish day. It's not part of our Jewish month um, for most communities. And I think as these substances become more widely available through expanded access, through legalization, decriminalization, I think it is important that uh, Jewish people get to know their mystical texts and practices better because let's say that a center opens for psychedelic exploration, for healing from PTSD, or even just uh, going for general wellness and self-exploration. I think it's important for people to know what their heritage has to say about the preparation, the exploration, and the integration of this. And there's a lot of material. Um, I would like to get started now. It might take 15 years <laughs> to build from now to the point where most people can experience, but there's a lot of work to do. So collect, collecting these texts, getting to know these teachers, translating them and getting to understand them, and being able to explore now what it means to have a mystical state of con be in a mystical state of consciousness for the time when these things become more normalized in our society. I was also thinking about biblical text and some tie-ins here, but a very different, a very different area of the Bible. Um, I'm going to be ordained as a rabbi in not too long, and I'm working on my Smila. my rabbinic teshuva. Thank you. Um, I'm working on my sort of final capstone project, give my take on um, an issue of, of importance in Jewish law. Um, and I'm looking at something that is like very obscure and we don't need to go into all the ins and outs of it, but it's the Nazarite vow. Um, the Nazarite vow for me is a deeply interesting thing because, and once again, you don't need to know the details, but basically it is, it is an intensive experience by an individual of an attempt at sort of transcendence, mm. an attempt at mm. closeness to God. That appears to be sort of what it is in the book of Numbers when it's brought up. And like entheogens, by the way, it is seen in all sorts of eras and contexts as very dangerous. It is seen as something that you shouldn't do without thinking through beforehand the consequences. It's something that the rabbis actually deeply discourage. And um, because there's some temple sacrifices associated with it, the rabbis actually sort of seem to eventually get to a point where they sort of are like, well, you can't really do this at all because there's no temple and you can't make the sacrifices at the end. So like, oh, bummer, it's gone. Shucks, this part of it. But it seems like they actually just didn't like the practice because of the risks that it's associated with. And and so it's it's funny because one of the practices of the Nazarite vow is that you specifically don't imbibe you don't imbibe wine, um, and some would say alcohol. Um, and it's and there's other mechanisms in place that sort of force you to be in a deeply individual space, not part of the community in the ways that you normally would be. And I guess I, like, I, I want to ask about that because what most excites me about your project and, you know, hopefully our collective project of the 15 years you talked about and beyond is 
I think we have a huge deficit of attempts, of Jewish attempts at transcendent individual experience. Beautiful. I think we have been so thoroughly, we've, we've so thoroughly bought into communitarianism, which is good. I like it. Most of our society is very much not that. We need collective thinking. Um, in a moment of social distancing, it's very clear why we need to be beyond ourselves. But I think we've so taught ourselves that Jewish leaders like Nothing we really can do on our own. We, we need that minion. We need 10 people. Um, uh, while I, I'm once again acknowledging that you said specifically there needs to be somebody along for the ride as you are taking on this experience, it's not 10. It's not a huge group. And I think that there is a notion that an individual, you, other individual clergy that were part of the study, others themselves are transformed in their own way. And I think that we we need that Jewishly, and I'm pining for more ways to get at that. And it's often hard for me to say it. It's a different kind of bashfulness than what you said before. It's like, I feel like any time I talk about we need an individualized Jewish practice, everybody's ready to jump and say, but community, but community, we need community. And I, I agree, but I'd love to hear from you, like, is this part of a bigger conversation that's not actually just about entheogens, but about ways that... Jewishly, we can sort of seek out individualized experiences of whether it's God or transcendence or the beyond. Lex, with the Nazarite, um, I think with the sense of like the collective and the, and the community is primary and the individual is secondary. And I think this all comes probably back to um, hegemony and authority. Who is invested, who is vested with the ability to say what is authoritative and, uh, and authentic? And I think, you know, the text that you mentioned and, and several many others, um, but there is a, there's a strong current against people having their own individual experiences other than, you know, the biblical prophets, which are codified and then interpreted and, you know, brought into a collective, you know, if there's a deviation from a norm that like, let's say uh, Ezekiel describes something different about what the temple will look like. You know, the third temple will look like commentators will then have to show how it actually is in line with a former tradition. Uh, the ability for someone to have a profound insight, um, not just like, Oh, I, I need to do something different at my workplace. Um, but about how we are reading texts about how we are doing Shabbat, right? Those things have some danger to them. Uh, it could reorganize practice. It could reorganize community and norms. And there's not only that, but the fear of abuse, that people could say, I've had this, I've had this insight. I've had this revelation. Come and follow me. And, and people are actually doing that merely to feed their own egos um, and to amass power. Um, and we don't have necessarily great ways of regulating that other than I can imagine, and just like, again, just like hypothesizing, maybe in um, orthodox and ultra-orthodox circles where there is already so much conscription about daily life that maybe the ability to uh, adventure or to journey inward, then, right, there's a control outside. Like, you can be having these wild visions, but you're still going to put on tefillin three times a day. You're still going to be keeping kosher, and, and your life is going to look mostly like everyone else's. So there's 
inward exploration, but external uh, communal normativity. So yeah, I agree that more individuals should be having these types of expanded experiences. Uh, Dan, you mentioned a breathing technique. I would encourage people to look at holotropic breath work. Um, that's the name of like one of these techniques. There's something that can happen profoundly just by breathing very quickly for 40 minutes and listening to loud music. Um, there's something that can happen very profoundly by putting yourself in particular postures for a long amount of time or, or fasting for uh, longer than you would otherwise. And there has to be, I think, integration, like you're talking, we're now talking about, then has to happen in the context of relationship. Like we can't avoid, we might be able to say, yes, more emphasis on the individual, but so much about what I think at least entheogens might offer is how we then think about our, our relationship structures, either with you know, my own physical body, uh, me and my mother, my wife and I, my community and I, my world and I, and not just like me, 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 me. And I think that's, you know, that in some ways that's actually what these plants and compounds do. Maybe Dan, you remember probably from Michael Pollan's book, he talks about right, the, the lasting effect of these, of these uh, compounds is that they do something to what is called the default mode network, which actually gives the ego, right, the sense of individuation, I, me, mine, a little break in some instances, um, complete dissolution from the ego, right? The anochi, the I am, takes a break for, you know, it has a rest. And then you're then able to explore what, if, if I wasn't here, if I wasn't just my body, if I wasn't just my really interesting thoughts, what would then I be able to see and participate in? And in this place that I'm hoping for in 15 years, it will be one person on a couch and then integrated into a larger community. But there are other models, like people who work with shamans in other countries in Mexico and South America, um, they are group experiences. Like we hear about ayahuasca circles in Peru and Colombia of people taking this medicine together. Um, I'm not ready to think about that, I'm just kind of going off the clinical model, um, but that might also then shape how we, we think about these things. So yes, and. So. I actually want to go back to what you were talking about earlier. And I'm curious about this as, as a vision or as an idea and just as something to bounce off of. Like, I think what I'm trying to get at is that when somebody, especially with a kind of more intellectual bent like me, you know, who hasn't had a lot of these kind of experiences, not only with psychedelics, but like I haven't even been to Burning Man, you know, um, sure. I have, you know, right, like I haven't done these kind of things. And when I encounter somebody who comes from that more mystical, spiritual world, I actually have a lot of respect for it. I actually feel like... Um, there's something real there, but I have a hard time accessing it because it's kind of very beyond my experience and my orientation. I have a sense that if I did what you did, if I had this one experience in a controlled environment, you know, et cetera, then I would have kind of a point of reference. So then when somebody who maybe has had that experience with psychedelics or maybe not, maybe they're just a more mystical kind of person would say to me, like, 
this or that idea or this or that notion, I would I would be able to tap into it on a visceral level, which right now I can only kind of intellectually understand. Yeah, that's real and I respect it, but I can't connect to it. And so I'm wondering if a better world would be one in which part of your life would be that you've you've done this a few times or once and that then the kind of shaman type of person the person who really has more of the expertise about how do we make sense of this can then be helping you process an experience that you've actually had rather than what i kind of experience religion as being which is some version of somebody who hasn't even really had the primary experience, but maybe they've had a secondary experience trying to in some way lead these people who haven't even had the secondary experience. Maybe they have a tertiary experience to try to somehow do something spiritually elevating. And I think it tends to not work to the frustration of everyone. And I just sort of wonder what you think about that. I mean, I know that you, that's not your short-term aspiration, but I, but I wonder like, is that a, would that be a better world or is it not so much a better world because as I also totally acknowledge, these things are dangerous in many levels, and maybe it's not meant to be fully democratized. Maybe that's where Timothy Leary got in trouble. Certainly, that's where he got in trouble with the government, but maybe it wasn't a good idea. I guess I'm just curious how you're putting all that together from this vantage point. Well, I definitely, you know, I, I can't say enough or as often as I should that the things that I'm talking about, even in legal environments, these things are not for everyone. Um, there are so many reasons why people get screened out, not just because they did it before, but uh, past family history with mental health, their own mental health. Um, There are risks that are involved. And so that's why I think it's about all of the modalities, Um, but this one just being the most reliable and repeatable one. Um, Dan, what you're, what you're talking about again, back from back to Pollan's book is, you know, he was able to, kind of uh, synthesize all of his experience into like something very, like, I I think, meaningful and concise, is that he was able to take a break from his own subjectivity and the objectivity of everything else, right? Not just me as a subject, then that I objectify things. Um, And that he then kind of diagnoses the world as having the, like a sickness that needs a medicine for that, right? Environmental degradation, um, human rights, uh, everything where we try to assert power and control over something else has become demonic, I would say. And so if we can take a break from that because of these medicines or other modalities, we might then not disrupt our entire world and society because of amassing things for our own, our own desire. And to the other part of your question, you know, I actually saw an example of this on Facebook the other day. Um, someone was describing something about reading Rabbi Nachman, a powerful, mystical practitioner, uh, incredible community leader, um, and, and, and writer um, of, of mystical reality and truth. And I know this person, I know where he comes from and I know what he's interested in. And he said, and he said like, Oh, this is just a laundry list of this is like that. That is like this, this, you know, this, this reminds me of this, right? Just like free association, but with no meaning. And from his rational perspective, that kind of mystical association holds no content. Um, But from someone who has had a direct experience of that, to say like, yeah, I remember 
when I saw shapes forming in and out, I don't know how long it was, but I saw that all of these concepts, all of material and matter were merely just coming into being and out over and again. And I can then read that inside Rabbi Nachman's text. Maybe he didn't, you know, he didn't take a pill and see that, but he saw that all of these concepts in some way are connected to each other and have something to say to each other. And someone who has not felt that deeply, who has not experienced the unity and, and dynamism of all things over time, how could they know? And I think then that that, like the process that you have described, and that's the process of secularization, Peter Berger calls it you know, removing um, this sacred canopy where we can you know, feel divinity or unity in all things because of uh, industrialization, technology, you know, our current acceleration of technology and secularization, that we can't even access it. And so then what is, how would you understand Judaism without some sense of that, even if it was a small sense? I think that we are in some ways like looking at a thing that we can't even understand um, we can understand it in our limited way, our limited perspective, but there's something deeper and beyond that we can only then tap into and find meaning by having a direct experience of this. So how do we get more people to know that and to access things about our, our culture and, and, and our tradition that are often laid you know, just by the wayside, they're stuck in translation, they're inaccessible, um, and then seen as kind of meaningless or silly. And so I think that it, it is crucial to be looking at people who are living these things throughout their daily life and, and through the lives of their families, through the, the texts that they read, the ways that they pray, the ways that they sing, the ways that they eat, as embodying some sort of spiritual or mystical knowledge. Um, but those, you know, there are things that get in the way. There are you know, people who are part of those communities with those practices and knowledge. There might be aspects of their culture that we are uh, not excited about or we you know, are immediately turned off with because of their cultural norms and values that are not in line with ours. Uh, so I think that there has to be some bridging then between the, the communities as well and sharing, sharing knowledge and making it authentically ours, you know, whoever that we is who is not participating in it yet, to say, you know, we don't have to become ultra-Orthodox to appreciate um, the texts and practices that are associated with the mystical aspects of that community. We can bring it in. We can, we can democratize it in our way. We can make it feminist. We can make it egalitarian. We can do all of these things, but we just have to get started. So that's a perfect segue um, to, to the topic I wanted to, to make sure we fit in before the yeah, topics to the person I wanted to make sure we brought in. Um, in talking about taking mystical teachings and finding ways to map it onto feminism, onto anti-racism work, onto like, to me, it would be very silly for us not to bring up Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi. Um, I want to, I want to dive into him a little bit because it would be silly not to. Um, We have a person in American Jewish history in, from the 20th century, from not too long ago, who I would argue 
got this train in motion? I mean, you talked about a 15-year effort. Um, to me, your 15-year effort is an extension of, I don't know, 40 years, uh, 40, so a, a number of decades. Starting in of, the summer of 1963. Let's there just you say go. that. <laughs> so, so it's an extension of a 57-year of a effort that I think Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi helped to, to put in motion, which was he directly was in community with Timothy. He 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 met Timothy Leary. He um he was deeply affected, and then he with that um with some of his own experiences and also his own background and all sorts of other things. Like he set about creating a world that would blend mystical teachings and experience with, I mean, not just with psychedelics, but with. Um, a whole sort of universe of counterculture practices that that I think has had a powerful impact already. So I guess I, I'd love to hear from you a little bit about the role that Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi plays. Um, and, uh, I'm using present tense, actually. Yeah, like, that's play, good. Plays that's, that, it, now. That's good for a Rebbe. Yeah. Um, but also sort of give us a window into some of the background that leads to the work that you're that you're now doing. Sure. Well, there are plenty of other people who um, know Reb Zalman's uh, entire corpus and have sat with him and, and lived with him and, and you know studied with him. So you know, in some ways, my experience is, is secondary. It's like I, I'd like to say that um, I sent him uh, a Skype invite that he never accepted. Uh, <laughs> true story. He, you know, all of a wow. shalom. He passed away um, before I could I could reach out and call him. Um, so yeah, uh, Reb Zalman is is one of, if not the patron saints. Right, he is the Rebbe of thinking um, about a number of these these questions. And we have a primary document, right? That's like also very exciting. If you go to my website zachcamins.com, uh, you can find a link to one of my projects, which is uh, we have transcribed the original trip report. You mentioned that he had been with Timothy Leary. He had you know, a relationship with Timothy Leary. I'll go even further to say, you know, the first time that he took LSD, one of these um, you know, major classes of psychedelics, uh, was with Timothy Leary on a day off from uh, working at Camp Ramah uh, in 1963. Um, he wrote about 40 pages about uh, what happened you know, on the way there, when they got there, uh, and his integration process afterwards on the right home. It's a fascinating document. Um, it was published before in another collection, um, but it would, had been highly edited because of all of the Hebrew and the Yiddish. And so now we have, um, we have transcribed the original document that you can find. And this will be, you know, hopefully, one of the first texts of a Jewish entheogenic psychedelic reader. And I think that what he set out, you know, someone told me that, you know, the only reason that we have uh, renewal Judaism is because he took LSD. Um, that might be the case. I don't know. It, it, it's never cited. Uh, but I think what Reb Zalman showed and through his experiences is that um, not only can we have these direct experiences um, with what I, you know, continue to call the beyond, but that it would lead to greater commitment to the Jewish project. It wouldn't merely be, um, you know, tuning in, turning on, tuning in and dropping out, right? Going in and um, living somewhere on a, on a funny commune, um, but becoming more deeply integrated into the stuff 
of Jewish life into Jewish ritual. Um, and, and at the same time, to be open to syncretism, right? This idea that not only was it, uh, you know, maybe 100% commitment to Judaism, but that, yeah, you know, I'm hanging out with the Buddha, I'm hanging out with Lord Shiva, um, I'm hanging out with uh, these other philosophical truths from other, from other religions, but they're all sitting together and I'm, uh, I'm living inside them, right? This idea of perennialism, uh, that you know, there are these mystical truths that exist at the top of the mountain. And once you get to the top, you know, you've been taking these winding roads up the hill, up the mountain of consciousness. They seem to be different. They seem to have uh, different degrees of difficulty and different aspects. But once you reach the peak, this peak experiences, you all reach the top at the, you know, and there's more similarity than there is difference. I think there's, there's also something uncomfortable about that. Uh, so these two things, right, full commitment, syncretism, and to blend them with our, our current sensibilities uh, is a really rich tapestry that, you know, even, you know, 57 years later, we're really just trying to um, get better at and, and know more about. And it seems like an amazing movie, Rev Zalman's Day Off. I'd like to see that. <laughs> and a uh, show note for next week, we're going to be interviewing the director of Camp Ramah about their employment practices to see about uh, how they're... I would like to read the article by the director of Camp Ramah, like the other side of the story, like what my staff took a day off and you know went to have LSD with Timothy Leary and... How did they feel about that? <laughs> well, he already, you know, he was, he was already, and I've done interviews with as many people as I could um, that were there with him at Ramah, um, some of his family members, some of his biographers uh, and archivists. Um, you know, he already was pushing the boundaries at, at camp. And so this was just another step in that boundary crossing that made him, in a lot of ways, you know, beloved. It was not only that he was, you know, trying to get everyone to freak out on making their own talus, but he had a huge heart and really shared that with people more than anything. Thank you so much, Zach Kamenetz, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. There's so much for us to continue meditating on, experiencing, and it's just really fun to be thought partners with you. Thank you both. This is exciting. And to be able to share these ideas with you, uh, you know, my projects, um, they're all on my website. I'm hoping to be the, the world's first rabbinic psychedelic assisted therapist and always just wanting to educate and advocate our community and more communities about what this work really means. It's already happening yeah. and I'm hoping to continue it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And we're going to close out our episode. Thanks to all of you out there listening um, or watching, if you're watching uh, via Facebook Live. And um, just to close with a few different ways that you can be in touch with us. And I'll start just with ZachCaminets.com. That's an important one. Um, Z-A-C um, and then K-A-M-E-N-E-T-Z.com. No H in, in Zach. Um, and that is a really amazing resource um, pathway into learning more and exploring more of what Zach is offering with all these projects. Um, and then there's the different ways you can be in touch with us, Jewish Live and Judaism Unbound. Um, those are both us. Um, so there's jewishlive.org and judaismunbound.com, our two websites. There are our Facebook pages, Jewish Live 
um, all one word and Judaism Unbound. There's our Twitter handle, which is just at Judaism Unbound. And also you can always, always email us. We really deeply appreciate hearing from everybody. And you can do that via lex at judaismunbound.com or dan at judaismunbound.com. The last request we'd like to make is that we really deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you can send our way. And you can do that via jewishlive.org slash donate or judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound Live.